as I got that invitation early this week, I began to think about Hebrews because I've been thinking a lot about Hebrews for the last couple years. And uh, so our text from God's Word is uh, a, a short text at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, so hear the, this word from the Lord, and then we will respond uh, and we'll go into uh, the exposition of this word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're praying to you to ask you to open our hearts to this word that you've given us about prayer. Like the disciples traveling with Jesus and overhearing his prayers, we realize we don't know how to pray as we ought. We need our risen Lord Jesus, now risen from the dead, to teach us how to pray. And this passage is a wonderful way in which you teach us really what's going on when we look away from the distractions of our daily life and fix our eyes upon you, even when we don't know what to do, as uh, the ancient Israelite king said. So, Father, teach us, transform us, show us yourself through the glory of your Son, and so draw us near to you in prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was over 40 years ago, I was in my second pastorate. I was a young pastor still. Uh, in a little church uh, in Los Angeles, and the Lord laid on my heart that I really should preach about prayer. I really should preach about prayer. People need to hear about prayer. And uh, I've been raised in a Christian home. My parents prayed. I heard them pray. I professed faith when I was 10 years old. I went to a Christian college. I went to a super seminary in Philadelphia. I won't name any names, but it's there. You can ask afterwards. So I knew a lot of theology, but I really did not know very much in practice about prayer. I probably still don't, but even, we'll let that go. I found, and I have found over the years, that it's much easier for me to promise prayer than to practice prayer. You know, when somebody really opens up their heart, they share something about that's really on their heart, and I'll say, I'll pray for you. And I say, I will do that, and I remember once, maybe twice, then I forget, until the next time I see them, of course. Then I remember, oh, right, I was supposed to pray. And I haven't been praying, not as faithfully as I should. Or sometimes in my own prayers, when there's something that really troubles me, I start in prayer asking God to intervene in the situation, and for some reason the next thing that's happening is I'm into this monologue with myself trying to figure out how I'm going to fix the situation. And I'm not really thinking about God anymore, but I'm thinking about my strategy. Anybody else have problems like that in prayer? 
I'm not, oh, I was going to say, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I have a volunteer already close to the front row. Yeah, we do, we do. Well, back to, okay, back to 40 years ago. I knew I needed to preach on prayer. I knew I, my theological library was really kind of thin on prayer, so I went to the Christian bookstore. And believe me, this was long before Paul Miller wrote his wonderful books, A Praying Life, now A Praying Church, more recently. Long before Tim Keller wrote Prayer, this wonderful book that uh, is quoted on your sermon notes page, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. But there were good books there. There were books on the Lord's Prayer. There were books on the elements of prayer, ACT, Yes, Acts, right? Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Good books on disciplining ourselves for prayer. I don't remember what any of those books were, but I found this other book by John White, Christian psychologist from Canada, called Daring to Draw Near. Daring to Draw Near. And whenever I come to this passage in Hebrews, I think of John White's book, Daring to Draw Near, because he's using that imagery of coming close to God. It's not a book about how to pray. In fact, White says, I can still find this one on my shelf, so I pulled it out on Monday afternoon. I can still find this one. He says, too many books already exist about prayer, 1979, long before Paul Miller started to write on prayer. Too many books exist about how to pray. So instead, what he writes is a book that is a collection of eavesdropping on people in the Bible who were praying, listening in on their prayers. So we hear Abraham haggling with God over what's to become of Sodom. And we hear Jacob wrestling with the Lord for blessing. And we hear Moses pleading with God not to incinerate the Israelite people after the golden calf. And we hear Hannah pouring out her heart, longing for a son, and the Lord hears, and so she names him, God hears. Samuel. And then we hear prayers by David and Daniel and Job and, and finally Jesus. But what White in the title showed me is what Hebrews is showing us. That however much prayer may feel like we're speaking into the void to someone who is far away, maybe can't even hear, or at best, on a long-distance phone call. Whenever I go to the airport and I'm waiting for a flight out of Chattanooga, I often hear people who are talking, sometimes at the top of their lungs, to nobody I can see. And I think, this person is a little unstable. I don't know if I... Then I realize they've got earbuds in and somewhere they're connected to Bluetooth and they're on a, in a conversation. Uh, but you see, Hebrews says, no... What prayer is really is not just about a long-distance phone call. Prayer is about drawing near to God, about coming close. It's about being priests who are privileged to come into the temple, into the holy palace of the Lord of the universe, and then to come even closer the way the, only the high priest in Israel in the Old Testament only once a year, not without blood. He could come right into the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's glory was resting on that Ark of the Covenant. He could get that close. We could draw near to that throne of God, which for us is not a throne of terrifying judgment, but as Hebrews says here, it's a throne of grace, and it's a source of mercy 
and it's a source of help. And I'm convinced for myself, and I believe for you as well, that when our hearts begin to grasp the wonder of that picture, that we're priests privileged to approach God's royal throne, and we can do it with confidence, as Hebrews says, I think then we're going to begin to approach prayer not as a dry duty, but as the amazing opportunity to savor the very presence of our God. But to get that picture, really, we have to start with some sobering news, and that is it's dangerous to draw near to God. I think that's partly what John White was implying when he said daring to draw near. It takes some courage to come close to God. You see, we get to this point in Hebrews by way of the last couple chapters, three and four up to this point, really describing uh, a terrifying series of events in the life of Old Testament Israel. It was the history of Israel's Exodus generation set free from Egypt, who sadly became Israel's wilderness generation, falling short of entering the promised land. God had done so much to win their trust. And Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95, reminds us of some of those things, but any of those folks who were raised within Judaism, raised with the Old Testament, probably you and I as well, can remember some of those events. God did lead them through the Red Sea, on dry land, out of slavery and into freedom. And then he closed the sea over their enemies. God's pillar of cloud and fire gave them Shade by day and light by night. God quenched their thirst with water from the rock and fed them every day with manna, the bread of heaven. They heard God's voice thunder on Mount Sinai as God gave them his good law, his wonderful covenant of commitment to them and his call to them to be committed to him. God had done a lot to win their trust, but they reacted with unbelief. They reacted not trusting his promises, and not worshiping him alone. Remember the golden calf? And then, on the the very verge of going into the promised land, they believed people who said, God can't give us this land. The people are too big. The people are too strong. Only Joshua and Caleb of of the 12 spies said, it's a good land. Everybody agreed it was good. And God can give it to us. So again, they rebelled. They balked, and God said, okay, fine. You don't want to go into my land, I'll give you what you want. You'll die in the wilderness. And that whole generation died. That's pretty sobering. And that's what chapters 3 and 4 in Hebrews has been reminding us of. And then it comes to this very sharp exhortation, but also sobering warning just before our text. Let me read it for you, chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. Hebrews concludes that whole discussion with let us us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that's a sobering truth. The living God sees right through you. So your heart is stripped bare and your deepest fantasy is exposed for him to see. That has to be uncomfortable for anybody with a tender conscience. And Hebrews actually compounds our discomfort later on. Chapter 10, Hebrews says, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then in verse 12, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If prayer is drawing near to a God like this, who sees our secrets and is fiery in his jealousy for us. Who wants to come close to him? Maybe if we avoid talking to him, we'll avoid thinking about him and we can fool ourselves into thinking that he isn't looking at us. But it won't work. So it's no wonder that John White, in his title, implied that drawing near to God is something that we need to dare to do. It's risky business. Maybe you remember in Leviticus when God had set up, had Moses set up the tabernacle and priests were ordained. Aaron and his sons were ordained in Leviticus 9 to be the priests who would go, who would draw near to God. That's chapter 9, great chapter. Chapter 10, two of Aaron's sons go into their place of worship with the wrong fire, with the wrong things, and they're struck dead. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. So it may be that we think of prayer as a dry duty because we don't realize how gloriously dangerous God is in his holiness for people like us. Maybe we think of God as a, a lonely grandpa who's waiting by the phone for some grandson to give him a call because he's, you know, try to carve out a little time in your schedule to, to be kind to the elderly. Uh, but it's not that. Uh, he's a lion. Uh, he's not... He's not a senior citizen. He's a roaring lion. You know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you don't know any of the other Narnia books, I bet you know that one, right? And when the beavers are explaining to the Pavensi kids who Aslan the lion is, and they learn that, the kids learn that he's a lion, and Susan, I think it is, asks, is he safe? And the beavers just laugh. Oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's dangerous, but he's good. And if you've gone a little further, you get to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and you find their cousin Eustace being stripped bare. I always, when I read this part about all the way to the heart, I think about the lion's claws cutting through Eustace's dragon skin. All the way, all the self-centeredness, all the selfishness cut away and it hurt, but it cured him. It hurt him, but it cured him. That's the living God with whom we have to do. As Keller says in the little quote at the bottom of that notes page, he is majestic and tender, holy and forgiving, loving and inscrutable. You can't understand him, not completely. When I begin to witness, to, to glimpse the majesty and the holiness and the mystery of who God really is, the God who listens to my little prayers when I pray, then I'm beginning to get on the way to being amazed 
that prayer is this wonderful privilege of drawing near and enjoying the pleasure of his presence. So actually, our text begins with that logic. Because God is so terrifying, because he searches our hearts, the text says in verse, uh, in verse 14, since then, he's drawing a conclusion from what he's just said. God searches us through and through. Since then, we have a great high priest. Because of God being so holy and knowing us through and through, therefore, we can and must hold to our confession of faith. We can and must draw near to him because we have this wonderful high priest who brings us near. We can come near to God's throne we can survive being close to God. In fact, more than survive, we can find it to be a throne of grace and a source of mercy and help because we have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Now again, before the bad, sad story of Israel in the wilderness, 3 and 4, back in chapters 1 and 2, Hebrews had been introducing us to Jesus, the Son of God, all the way through chapter 1, from the opening through seven Old Testament quotations, he points out how Jesus is so much bigger and greater than even the glorious angels who serve around God's throne. He is the eternal God. He's the creator of the whole universe. He's the one angels worship and serve. He's the one who is ruling at God's right hand. He is amazingly majestic. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And then in chapter 2, Hebrews says, and by the way, this eternal Son of God, think of the contrast between Him and us on this earth. So he quotes from Psalm 8, how little man is. He's quoting from David's reflections on the wonderful starry skies uh, as he looks at the starry uh, universe. Jane and I moved, when I retired five years ago, from the always light interference of Southern California to really dark skies here in eastern Tennessee, in Dayton especially. And I thought, oh, there are stars up there, lots of stars. David probably glimpsed more than I can see with the bare eye because we still got a little light uh, here and there from the town, even the little town of Dayton. But uh, David looks up and he says, what is, what is man? When I see the stars, what are, you know, I'm, I'm, you've made me even a little lower than the angels. You've crowned me with glory and honor, but I'm so little. And Hebrews says that's true of humanity, but he says here's the amazing thing. The great son who is far above the angels was willing to share your human nature. He came to share that human littleness a little while lower than the angels. And then Hebrews goes on in chapter 2 to say, and I want you to know how and why he did it. He became human in order to suffer and die for you, in order to bring you to God, in order to lead many of God's children to salvation. So the Son, infinitely greater than the angels, became human, lower than the angels for a time, and he did it to die for us, to set us free from fearing death, because he's cleansed our conscience and made us acceptable in God's sight. 
as Hebrews says in chapter 2, and I'm going to read you a little bit of a section there because it's such a rich bundle of gospel truths. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's the first time that title is applied to Jesus in this book. Merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, making propitiation for the sins of the people. And because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a summary of the gospel, right? God the Son became a human being, sharing our flesh and blood. That's incarnation. In that human nature, the Son died on our behalf, satisfying the demands of God's justice against us, the guilty rebels. That's propitiation. God deflecting His wrath from us and putting it on Jesus, who didn't deserve it because He suffered for us. And the devil, our seducer, our accuser, has no right to demand our death anymore, so we don't fear death. Our debt to justice has been paid by Jesus. That's justification. And in his human nature, because he suffered and was tempted as we are, he's able to help us. That's the transformation that we sometimes call sanctification. It's all there in those few verses in chapter 2. So now, Hebrews 4 is echoing that, reminding us that this Son of God is our great high priest, that he's in heaven. And then Hebrews says, now, there is one difference between Jesus and you in this whole thing of temptation. He was tempted without sin. He never sinned in what he thought, in what he wanted, in what he said, in what he did. He never sinned. He always obeyed in every temptation. And because of that, he really can be the sacrifice, the innocent, spotless sacrifice washes away your guilt so that you're welcomed by the Father. He's utterly innocent, perfectly obedient. As Hebrews 9 will say later on, the blood of Christ offered, who offered himself without blemish to God will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus has removed our guilt. He's spared us from eternal punishment. That's the wonderful rescue that we've received, but there's more. And Hebrews especially wants us to see that there's more than simply escape from judgment that God did for us in the cross of Christ. God welcomed us into his presence. Peter actually writes over in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God so that he might bring us to the Father. In other words, God doesn't simply release us from prison or expunge our record of wrongdoing or not impose the sentence we deserve and then send us away home and say, don't do that again. No, the judge pounds his gavel, declares us not guilty, and then he leaves the bench and comes down and embraces us and says, come home with me. Come home with me. Draw near to God. 
You may remember the Old Testament account of David and his son Absalom. Absalom uh, assassinated his brother Amnon. Amnon had it coming, but that's another story. But Absalom knew that his father was going to probably impose judgment on him for killing his brother Amnon, so he ran away and lived in exile for a long time. Finally, David was persuaded to let Absalom come back into the capital in Jerusalem, but David said, okay, he can come back, there's a kind of amnesty there, but he can't come to the palace. He cannot see my face. Finally, Absalom kind of forced it, and there was a very formal kind of maybe reconciliation, but really, the relationship was never rebuilt. See, God is not like King David. God doesn't say, okay, I won't punish you, but just stay out of my sight. God doesn't say that. God says, I forgive you. Now come home. Now draw near to me. Think of Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son. You know, the father doesn't just see the, the, the son who's defied him and dishonored him at a distance and sort of stand with his arms folded saying, well, what's the apology going to be like? No. The father gathers up his robes and he runs pell-mell down the, down the dusty path and he throws his arms around the son and he welcomes him and he kisses him and he throws the party to celebrate his homecoming. That's what God is like. That's what God is like. He's urging us to draw near. That's what prayer is all about. In the imagery of the temple, which Hebrews is so keen to develop for us, God is opening the way into his most holy place. We read in the Gospels, especially Mark, that when Jesus died, the curtain separating the holy place from that inner sanctum, the most holy place in the temple, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. Who could rip the curtain in two from top to bottom? Only God himself. And that's what happened. And Hebrews says, this is what it means. God wants you in close to him. Back in chapter 10 of Hebrews, we'll come to the kind of the reprise of this text that we're looking at. And there Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh. God opened the way into his most holy place for us. In the Old Testament, the high priest went in with fear and trembling once a year into that most holy place with sacrificial animal blood to sprinkle it on that atonement cover, that mercy seat on the top of the ark. Now God says, all of us who belong to Jesus are welcome to the heavenly throne of God, because Jesus' blood has sprinkled that throne for us. And it's as if the Father is saying, if we come through that now torn open veil and kind of hint, don't just, don't just kind of stand hesitantly on the edge of the most holy place, come, come near, approach the throne, let me embrace you. And as you do, as that's what we think of as we come to God in prayer, then God says, you will find my throne of grace a source of mercy and help in time of need. That's, I think, what all the versions say. ESV says it, the King James Version says it. Help in time of need. Sounds a little awkward. 
in English, in time of need. It actually translates a single word in the original. And the word really means, again, we have to use a phrase, in the nick of time, timely, at just the right time, the time you need, the help you need at the time you need, just right then. I know, we've prayed, we've asked God for things, and it seems like he's late sometimes. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? I've asked, and I've asked, and I've asked. But Hebrews says, no, actually, he knows what you need better than you do, and he knows when you need it better than you do. And the help that he gives comes right on time. So we approach the royal throne. We receive the king's embrace. We pour out our hearts, pains, and longings before the king. And we know that God is a lot better than we human parents are. When our kids want to get our attention, sometimes we pay attention right away, and sometimes we're thinking about grown-up things. And they're whining, maybe. Or if they're little enough, they're yanking on our, on our slacks and saying, Dad! Mom! Moms pay better attention than dads. Okay, we'll just use dad. Dad! Pay attention! And, you know, my mind's a million miles away, and I'm not really looking at them. God's not like that. He's meeting us eye to eye. He's focused his attention on us. Psalmist was right in Psalm 103 when he said, As the Father shows compassion to, the, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers our dust. That is, as the best father is on his best moment, showing compassion to his kids. God is super better than that. Showing compassion for his children because he knows us through and through and he knows how weak we are. And the Father on the throne, right at his right hand, is Jesus, the Son, who knows us not only because the Father, Son, and Spirit, this triune God whom we confess, created us so they know us through and through. He knows our trials not only from the standpoint of his divine knowledge of all things everywhere, but he knows our trials from his human experience of having been tempted as we are. Except when we're tempted, we sin, and Jesus doesn't, so he can be our sacrifice. His personal experience of struggle and suffering and sorrow, he knows exactly what we need, and he provides it exactly when we need it, because he's been tempted as we are without sin. In fact, Hebrews says, our weak and often confused prayers are blended with Jesus' perfect prayers for us. Hebrews says in chapter 7, he's always living to intercede for us. So that's what's happening when we pray, when we really focus on what we're doing, when we think about intentionally, desperately, confidently, hopefully, drawing near to God in prayer. Not as a mechanical routine that we are supposed to do, not as a duty, but as wayward children who know that we're graciously welcomed and forgiven by the Father. Welcome to draw near, so we dare to draw near. And we do it with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the faithfulness of God who promises that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and in the sufficiency of God's Son who has given his life for us.
dare to draw near, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, thank you not only for your exhortations to pray, but for your invitation to pray and to worship, because really all of our worship is a daring to draw near you. As we've sung to you this morning, as we've offered our prayers to you, as we've listened to you speak to us through your word, all of that is communion, is fellowship, is drawing near to you. And now, Father, also, in the supper that our Lord Jesus established for us, you invite us to come to your table, and for that we give you thanks as well. We dare to draw near, not because we are worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And so we long to look to fellowship with you, to feast on the grace that your Spirit gives as we partake in faith, as we now approach your table together. And Father, may this spill out into our life of prayer this afternoon, tomorrow, Wednesday, Friday, throughout the week, Father. Wet our appetites to be close to you. Dangerous as you are, but also all-loving as you are. Draw us close to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.